0: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, April 24th. We've got Real Vision's Ash Bennington standing by with Tony Greer of TG Macro, and they're ready to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over the biggest stories in markets as well as on the coronavirus pandemic. Starting off with some coronavirus data, the US confirmed death count has surpassed the 50,000 threshold out of close to 900,000 confirmed cases that we've now had That's certainly a grim milestone. This comes at a time when President Trump has signed off on the most recent relief package, and states like Georgia are beginning to reopen businesses today. While in South America, the total confirmed case count has reached 100,000, the majority of which are in Brazil, Peru, as well as in Ecuador, where the official death count exceeds 500. But it's likely that the true number of deaths from COVID in Ecuador is actually much, much higher. According to the BBC, from the beginning of March till mid-April, Uh, just one province alone, Guayas, reported almost 15,000 deaths, and that's a death rate seven times higher than normal. The lack of testing and medical supplies has imposed an incredible burden on Ecuador, which might be one of the hardest hit countries in Latin America when it comes to the coronavirus. Going back to the states now, where jobless claims continue to pile up. Yesterday, the cumulative tally coming in at 26 million. Some of these jobs, as we know, are in the service sector, but employees who work at startups are feeling the burden of the shutdown as well. According to layoffs.fyi, a database that tracks job losses, over 30,000 employees from over 300 tech startups have been laid off since March 11th. The layoffs were concentrated in the San Francisco Bay area, unsurprisingly, and we're already hearing rumors that the real estate market there is under significant distress. Revenues across almost every industry are taking a serious hit. And with venture capital drying up, it's unlikely that any of these startups recover anytime soon, if at all. In market news, the S&P 500 is getting quite pricey if you look at the forward price-to-earnings ratio. Over the past month, constituent equities have been bid up even as the picture for those companies' future earnings continues to get worse, making the S&P 500 the most expensive it's been since the 2001 dot-com bubble. In Europe, equities had a bad day, After yesterday's dismal economic indicators dovetailed with ECB President Christine Lagarde's dire warning to EU ministers that GDP for the Eurozone could contract by as much as 15%. So far, the ECB has been relatively restrained. It's been the dog that hasn't barked, at least compared to the Fed. But it's forecasted to take its QE to the next level, and its recent loosening of collateral requirements has caused some to speculate that it will soon join the Federal Reserve and start buying junk bonds outright as well. For a more in-depth look at Europe, you might want to check out today's interview with Mark Blythe and Adam Tooze. It's a great conversation about the ECB and the Fed, as well as about fragility in the global economy in general. And lastly, here are some stories that we didn't have time to cover today. JCPenney is on the brink of bankruptcy while the Brazilian stock market tumbled today as Justice Minister Sergio Moro resigned. And lastly, the insurance industry worldwide is bracing for some of the biggest losses in recorded history. Maybe we'll dive into these stories next week, but for now, it's time to go to our heavy hitters, We have our very own Ash Bennington hosting the great Tony Greer as he makes his glorious return to Real Vision. I know Tony and Ash have some very strong thoughts on everything that's going on in the market, particularly as it relates to the relationship between the equity rally and central bank liquidity. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. Guys, take it away.
1: Thanks, Jack. It's Friday, April 24th, 2020, just after market close in New York. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, we're joined by our first external guest in the history of the show. He's been a host. He's been a guest. He's been a friend of the platform for many years, Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for having me, Ash. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, we had quite a week, right? You know, it was, um, to me, I've looked at the market as trading on a combination of sort of technicals, optics, and sentiment. And this week was another week of that. I feel like Um, we came in after the weekend, and there were some bad optics for sure, right? We had sort of the price of oil started falling on Sunday night. Um, You know, the news over the weekend was um, about the virus was probably more deaths than we would have liked to hear about. Seeing as we're supposed to be coming down the back end of the curve now, right? Um, So the numbers, the optics were kind of worse than expected. And there was news circulating about the failure, uh, shortcomings of the PPP and SBA loans that were going around. And everybody was getting a little, you know, you started off Monday with that disgruntled feeling, um, you know, and we walked face first into that super wild, super contango trade in oil, right? So, um, you know, the optics of oil you know, going down, going negative, you know, people struggling to comprehend exactly what the, the mechanics of that are, are terrible optics for risk, right? So we started off with a week where everybody was de-risking. Um, you know, everybody pretty much understands that, you know, the tanks at Cushing are full. Um, Saudi Arabia continues to send supply over here um, to, you know, to exacerbate the storage issue. The pipelines are full so that you can't even move oil to and from Cushing. And if you're along the front contract there and you don't want it, you will certainly pay somebody to take it off your hands. So I'm sure everybody's gone through that by this point in the week, but I just thought I'd mention it because it's interesting. Um, So what we saw was at the beginning of the week was what I'm calling, I'm identifying really as this longer lockdown rotation. That we're in, right? So we saw we're going to be locked down longer than expected. Obviously, we've got a big demand problem to deal with first, right? So oil fit that description. You know, we saw weakness in, you know, typical sectors, utilities, industrials, transports, all of that stuff straight down. Um, And it ran us into a pretty big de risking day on Tuesday, where we saw a little bit of a big cap meltdown, where finally Apple and Google went down. Like, you know, I thought, you know, the funniest thing about this tape is that the, the equity market can be such a lagging indicator sometimes. You know, like it took oil to go to print minus $25, you know, to derail the big cap retracement rally in tech that was going on. So we finally saw that on Tuesday. Um, and you really can't hide the rotation of what's going on at 40 vol right you look up at the end of the day and it's crystal clear you know monday and tuesday we had energy literally getting slaughtered alongside the optics of the may crude oil contract coming off and then it went into an opposite situation on wednesday where now the law of small numbers started to play in crude oil's favor where once everybody got the may contract out of their system once you read that the uso etf had ro- rolled mostly into june mostly into august um you know, everybody was now running from this issue, and now crude oil is rallying in large denominations from its you know seven, eight, eleven dollar lows, back into the teens to more reasonable numbers. And what that does automatically is it gets the risk appetite going again, right? Um, what it does when gold is rallying alongside it, I thought it was really interesting this week that sort of gold took the lead as the animal spirits leader. you know gold all of a sudden you know you when you look at stocks like newmont and american barrack uh, excuse me barrack gold um that are gapping open higher, like you know there's there's you know fear of missing out buying going on all of a sudden in gold mining stocks. it looks like there may have been a serious um, portfolio um, reallocation or something like that, or maybe it's big short covering, but it seems like people want to be long the gold stocks and go with this breakout. so that sort of you know got the risk. The markets back into you know accepting a little bit more risk this week, escape, accepting that what is going on at the Fed and their balance sheet is going to actually have an effect. And you know you saw stocks get back on their feet in the middle of the week, you know by Wednesday and Thursday. Um, Thursday once again we had to live through those Euro PMIs. You know we had to live through the shock and awe economic data of the virus lockdown. Now, um, you know we saw services PMIs over in Europe into the teens, which is quite frankly. You know, it's terrifying. You know, it's terrifying, but at least we know that it's temporary. Um, You know, it's terrifying because we're trying to price in either a recession or a depression. And, you know, we would like this to be a recession and one that's over quickly if we can restart the economy. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of economic damage that's already done. Right. Uh, also Thursday, you know, we, we got the um, labor force data. You know, another four and a half million unemployment claims, which now gets us to above twenty six million over the five weeks. Uh, you know, with labor force Ash, at one hundred and sixty five million people in the first place, twenty five million is a big divot to be applying for unemployment claims. Um, the population of that that's equal to the population of the ten biggest cities in the country, just for some scale. So imagine um, all of that being unemployed and trying to find their way back after this is going to be quite, um, an economic feat to be, to, uh, behold. So, um, you know, we are, what we also saw on Thursday, that was really important for me, who was still playing a sort of bullish bent to the retracement. Uh, we saw some bodies float to the top. And what I mean by that is, you know, we lived through a period of very severe and extreme deleveraging, right. In that period from, um, Call at the end of February into the beginning of March when the S and P bottomed down at 2175, and you know we put in some extreme tick prints, which are the tick indexes measured um, exactly how much of the market is trading on the bid versus how much is trading on the offer, and when it puts in a number of consecutive huge numbers on the downside, you know that these are liquidations that are happening in the markets. And we had a period there where we had 10 out of 15 days where tick prints bigger than minus 1,500. And those are 10 extreme, extreme sessions that really, you know, those happen once or twice a quarter. And here we go. And we had 10 out of 15 sessions of selling. And that's why it was so extreme. But this week, at least we learned what it was all about. Headlines came across the tape. We saw that stock Traders lost 200 million euro in the um, the virus route. We saw that investors pulled 33 billion dollars from hedge funds during the first quarter, and you know that's certainly part of the liquidation route. Um, We learned that Alberta Investment Management Corp. got caught losing three billion dollars selling volatility. Right, so these are the blowups that go along with that, you know, tape uh, decimation that we lived through. And these, for me, are the reason that I'm not expecting a waterfall again um, when the equity market dips necessarily um, you know things could change but if things remain the way they are i think that that heavy selling has been done and we're through that and now we've moved into this phase where we're in the longer lockdown
1: rotation right um, and that brings us to today
2: yeah so you know we'll go to today and today was really a um, you know it kind of re- it, it sort of helped to define the week um, but what, what it was, was the S&P really just continuing to rotate around the 50-day moving average resistance level to me as a technician, which was the first logical stop off of the lows. right? So now the market is deciding whether it can advance from here or not. It's still trading on sentiment, optics, and technicals. So the technicals we've got down, we, we see that we've stopped at this um, important level. Um, but today was really a continuation of, of the week. You know, We saw strong gold miners, we saw strong energy, oil services. Rallied, you know, we're seeing levered stocks actually be able to rally in the energy department, which is very interesting. You know, we saw strength in the cannabis sector for the first time in a while off of the lows. We're seeing biotech hold up because of the need for more testing and more biotechnology in this whole entire battle. you know, and we saw a strong dollar again this week. So, you know, these are the things that, to me, are sort of holding the tape together right now. Right. Um, and and so that sort of brings us to a close, where the tape is still in this rotation and a consolidation mode. Um, we didn't really make any decision as to which way we're going to break this week, but I would. It sort of coils us up a little bit tighter. And I think that when we have the first large magnet, the next large magnitude move. That's a move that I probably wouldn't want to fade after having a week like this where there was so much distribution in the markets. There was a lot of stock changing hands in big cap stocks. You know, they had really volatile rallies this week and wound up not having much of a change. Um, all things considered but it's going to be interesting to see of course how we play out right so so I'd love to hear you know what things look like on your side ash and and sort of what spin you're looking at in the markets my biggest concern that I'll, I'll just touch on now is um, is going to be food inflation with the most recent shutdowns in a lot of the meat producing plants because many of the meat producing workers have caught coronavirus and so if they've got to shut those plants down now we're going to have you know product that's going to get wasted and probably not make it out of the warehouse that means that it's not going to make it to the shelves that creates a whole another level of emotion on top of the high volatile markets that we're living through right now right. so you know there there are a lot of landmines to navigate um, but my posture, not that you're really looking for it, but my, my idea is that the S&P is probably, given what's going on at the Federal Reserve, um, given the fact that we broke through $4.2 trillion on the upside of the balance sheet and are now at something like $6.7 trillion in a month. Um, to me, that's sort of widening the Overton window as to where we might go with the balance sheet. Now, I mean, I would I'm, I'm approaching it as there's going to be no limit as to what they take on the balance sheet. Um, I'm imagining that there's going to be tremendous public pushback from the fact that we've learned that a lot of large large. Sort of larger small businesses have gotten their loans that they've um, applied for, and I saw a number of something like one in fifteen of smaller businesses got right. the loans that they applied for. So you know that's going to cause devastating economic damage if the if the data is really that tilted, and you know that's the thing that we've got. To me, that's the eight hundred pound gorilla that's marching on around there in the future that we're going to have to eventually encounter is when this data actually comes home to roost on the tape, and then we're going to see right. what's pre- Stand and what's not
1: right, yeah. You know, I that's a a very sort of granular uh summary on the technical side and also on the fundamental side for the last week, and uh, it sets us up very nicely, I guess, to ask some of the bigger questions. um, You know, as you alluded to about where we are right now, um, what it is we should be looking at, what it is we should be worrying about, uh, what it is we should be looking to lead us out of a potential downturn, you know. The the single the data point that I found most interesting or series of data points that I found most interesting was an article uh, came out in The New York Times uh, a couple of days ago that detailed uh, a series of potential models forecasting the trajectory of this disease. Uh, and it was interesting to me because, you know, very simply, the, the models are all over the place. Right. You've got you know, you've got. These eminent scientists, associated with various eminent institutions, coming up with different forecast models, and they all look completely different, right? And for guys like us who watch markets, the fact that we're watching epidemiological studies should make us a little bit nervous, right? That should tell us that there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in this market, and. um, you know the the level of uncertainty around the trajectory of the disease, which is the feeder into the timeline to reopen the country and to get the economy moving again, is something that you know that gives me a bit of pause. Um, you know, I, I one of the great things about Real Vision is we have these really cool subscribers and they engage with us in the comments. And one of the guys, Peter C, wrote a post and we went back and forth a little bit. And he said, "Hey, take a look at this epidemiological calculator." Right. So I go up to the website. And it basically draws a series of curves based on sliders that they use for input, like the r naught number we keep hearing about, the number of people who get the disease and, and what have you. And you read the footnotes at the bottom, and I'm not trying to be smarter than I am, but like I know that differential equations are things that are a little out of my league. But when you see that it's an exponentiation function, you're raising things to a certain power, you move the little slider, you ooch it a little bit to the left, you ooch it a little bit to the right, and the entire curve shifts, right? So you don't have to be a mathematician to realize. You're dealing with extreme sensitivity to these initial inputs, and the curves change dramatically as a consequence of that. And that's what we're seeing play out. I believe in the New York Times. You're seeing these models that are very difficult to forecast because they're so sensitive to the tiniest changes in input data; they, they give you totally different output. And that's something that I think we we really need to think about. You know, one of the one of the things that concerns me um, when I read you know when I read newspapers and when I when I listen to market guys talk about this is people like. you, You and I are very lucky, right? You know, you you go out on the you go out on the terrace, you open up your MacBook Pro, you log on to Zoom, you do a conference call, and we go, well, you know, we're getting through this, right? But for a lot of people in this country, for ordinary American workers, it's a binary proposition. And for them, the switch of work has been turned off, right? You're a construction guy, you're a waiter, you're a waitress, you work in a factory, you work in a store. Um, you know, the the world is shut down. And um, you know, I wonder when you alluded to all of those really grim PMI uh, prints that we had. Even worse, out of Europe, the flash PMI uh, in uh, in April fell uh, to uh, 27. These are like unprecedentedly hideous numbers. And um, you know, so I wonder when you think about it, and you think sort of about zooming the camera out to the fifty thousand foot level, and when you look at the economy, do you ask yourself? When you ask yourself, "Is the stock market pricing in this risk? Are U.S. equity markets reflecting where the overall state of the economy is?" What's your feeling about that?
2: Well, you know, I have a strong feeling about it because I've managed to maintain a positive outlook on the S and P. Since the collapse, right? And, and as a trader, not as an investor, but as a trader, so right. you know it's gonna go up, it's gonna go up from here because you know, we've had these blow ups in the rear view mirror, et cetera. So I've maintained a positive attitude and I turn on FinTwid every day. And, you know, there are people jumping up and down, pulling their hair out when you print six million unemployment claims and the SP goes up two and a quarter percent, right? That yeah. does not register for them, and I can totally appreciate that. So there's a clear, there's clearly something going on other than the market reacting to pure economic data, right? And that's what's going on at the Federal Reserve, right? Right. So what's what the whole that we're going to see inevitably in SP earnings that is gonna match these PMI data and it's gonna match the unemployment data and it's gonna translate into earnings and then we're gonna see a shock in our earnings, right? And what's going on is the Fed is replacing that divot by injecting liquidity into the system and taking, you know, more and more debt onto their balance sheet. Great. So, you know, when when you look at it as a pure trader and and sort of, you know, student of the market, you say, well, I, I really can't be as concerned with the unemployed people right now, because there's an opportunity for the tape to bounce you know, in astronomical proportions right now, just to retrace itself toward resistance to a point where you could say, OK, now it's a technical sale. But the battle that goes on is that people are expecting at some point the tape to realize with the economy. Right. like we've just been discussing, you know, we don't know whether we're in a recession or a depression or how long it's going to last or whether it's V-shaped or swoosh-shaped or whatever the heck it's going to be. You pointed out even the models are you know, laden with uncertainty. And so the market is sort of trying to price all of that in. And so, you know, you have to consider at all times, like to me, when I boil it back down to, okay, you know what, if I tune everything out and I look at technicals and I consider sentiment, and then I'm really super hyper aware of optics and what's going on right now, right? then I can trade this tape, right? And And sometimes that entails the tape rallying in large magnitude. And I think that we're still set up probably to see larger moves on the upside than we are on the downside, you know, and some of that has to do with the phase of the breakdown that we're in. Some of it has to do with the phase of the technical cycle that we're in, but you know, this thing, went down straight in a straight line so fast that now we're going to, unfortunately, we're going to see these insane melt-ups just for the tape to get caught up with you know, what's overbought and oversold. So I don't want to drone on too much technically like that. But there's a definite disparity between what's going on in the economy and what's right. going on in the tape. And it's going to get worse. It's going You're, to get worse.
1: You know, Tony, you hit on what I think are the two crucial points here to understand what's going on. You know, I look okay. at this. In a in a very simplistic way, I look and I go, well, you know, the high print on the S and P closing high uh, was the all time high. In fact, was uh, 19 February, and the close was uh, 33.86. You know, today we closed at 28.36. You know, you do the the simple arithmetic, we're down 16.2 percent from the high. And you look at that and you go, well, how how does that make sense, right? Does this look like an ordinary correction, or does this look like something a lot worse? You know, I mean, I walk outside. My apartment here in New York City, and I see like stores boarded up, I see people wearing masks walking down the street, to me, that doesn't feel like an ordinary recession, like an ordinary correction. But the two points that you hit on that are so critical to actually understanding this, and we're so happy to have you here to talk about, is to understand the time horizons that you look at this on. This is absolutely critical. When you're looking at this as a technical trader, how do you think about those time horizons where you're looking for return, your entry point, your exit point, and how do you think about that more broadly in the Context of everything that's going on with all of the information that's coming at you.
2: Okay, well, you know, it's a great question, Ash, because
1: it's been, you know, it's it's what the
2: traders like me have been wrestling with for three months now. You know, it is sort of, um, you know, so you the, the way you approach this is you're looking for the things that you first want to buy and want to sell. Right, so so the tape is going to have these days when it's rallying and when it's collapsing, and you have to be ready beforehand with what I want to buy on the deep down days and what I want to sell on big rally days. So being ahead of that was a huge um, is a huge help for starters. Right, is just having your okay. If the world comes apart, then I'm going to get a chance to buy these stocks that have been on a rally that I think are probably going to be in good shape before and after the virus, like Apple and Microsoft and things like that. Right, um, but to, you've to, been thinking play, about
1: this list for a long time.
2: Yeah, you know, I I, I run a view matrix within my, my newsletter. And so I'm always, you know, anybody, you can ask me, you can wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me what I would buy or sell in the stock market. And I could probably rattle off five names aside, just because I'm always standing there ready waiting for them, right? So there are things like that that you can get ahead of that help you um, you know just make decisions and and look in the right places when the market is extremely volatile and then you have to have a look around and the biggest thing to be honest with you is right now is measuring sentiment mm-hmm. when we came in, I think it was on that Monday that we made the low and then markets rallied from there right. I, th- I think over that weekend, I had two people call me up that never call me up to talk about the stock market, to call me up to say, um, OK, we're going into a depression tomorrow. The S&P is going My numbers say 600, 800, something like that pretty quickly. So I probably want to buy some puts on the opening tomorrow. And I'm like, got it right? I have never heard from you in three, six months, I mean, years about the markets, all of a sudden you're calling me and after a thousand point slide telling me that you're bearish. And so those are real sentiment signals that I look at. And I start contacting my friends that also assemble these signals and say, are you you hearing um, newly minted bears down here after the 1500 point slide. And when you look around and it's scary, and they're looking at you going, Yeah, yeah, everybody wants to sell this thing. Everybody's looking for 1500, that old double top in the SP, right? It's got to happen. The, the economy is shut down globally, right? How can we not just go to the depths of the lows? Well, the right. reason is because sentiment gets that bad, and everything that needs to be sold is sold, right? And eventually you get to the point where everybody's looking down. And you can't forget that you have big 800-pound gorilla plain vanilla funds with 10 and 20-year time horizons that are ready to deploy billions of dollars in capital at every 10 percent increment lower in the market, right? And they say, "Well, I'm going to buy this for 2020, uh, for 2029, and 2030." Um, so let's go have at it, you know. And then so you look up and there's no seller left, right? So this is why you get into that dynamic of now they're chasing things because. Geez, they're still cheap for 2030, right? So let's keep buying those names and everybody looking around saying, but wait, now the unemployment people are going to the line and looking for their check. You can't be buying this now. And that's where you start out with that whole disconnect. And if you, like you said, you're identifying knowing where you are timing wise in those waves is the most important thing. And it really, it, it comes down to reading the sentiment. It gets very, you'll, you, if you're on a trading desk or you write a newsletter, you will know it gets very, very loud at the bottom. Your text rings, your Bloomberg IB rings, you get emails, people are showing up at your door and it's like, whoa, I get it now. Right? So that's when the sentiment gets extreme and you have to say, okay, that was it for now.
1: It's such an important point, Tony, because I think a lot of people who read headlines and then they see the S&P or they see the Dow and they don't see them corresponding, they don't have that level of nuance of understanding about how these things move with sentiment. Exactly. Exactly. And it's all timing. You know, if they were considering how steep the
2: sell-off was, maybe, and how historic it was, you know, if they hadn't sat through two or three crashes before, they don't understand that. So that's why they can't get their head around the fact that market's going up during this.
1: Right. You know the other thing that you hit on the second point that is so critical uh, is the role of the Fed uh, in in reflating these markets. Um, you know if if uh, you're in front of a computer right now and you hit uh, you go to uh, the uh, Fed Fred St. Louis Fred website um, and you look at the series WALCL you'll see uh, and if you're listening on a podcast my fingers going straight up in the air when you look at this curve it went down to a low you know the uh, the fed balance sheet uh, was at about 4.4 4 trillion 4.5 trillion for uh, for basically for you know the end of 2014 uh, and then they started to uh, they started to roll some of those assets off in 2017 we got down to about 3.5 trillion i think at the low on the consolidated fed balance sheet and from 3.5 trillion uh in the last you know, since the beginning of this crisis, since uh, around March fourth, we went absolutely straight line up uh, to uh, the number now, which is about six point five trillion. What's the role of the Fed balance sheet in this? How is it moving markets?
2: Okay, well, they're actually what they're doing. I wanted to grab a sheet here that I have. Um, you know, they're soaking up all of the toxic debt essentially that is lingering around on bank balance sheets. Among other things, right? The biggest risk, I think, in the credit markets is the enormous tranche of triple B rated bonds, which are still investment grade, right? If they get one level of downgrade, they become junk, right? That changes the dynamic for a lot of different funds. You know, investment grade funds have got to sell the bond now. Probably, you know, if in most cases that's the story, according to their charter and be only long, um, you know, high uh, their investment grade bonds and have to sell the bonds that go high yield. So there's an enormous amount of credit that is in that tranche of triple B that is going to be now at risk with this type of shutdown, stoppage of cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to have to see how that pans out in the credit markets. But what the Fed had their last line just to start and work backwards is, you know, the last thing they said was that they're going to be buying high yield credit. So, you know, essentially they are now they're nationalizing the high yield market, right? They are the buyer of last resort. We no longer have to worry about HYG and JNK imploding because there needs to be a huge credit sale or there's a huge credit blow up within it. Um, but you know, the other role, you know, in to address this um, this shutdown, the Fed immediately went to 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 address your balance sheet question, Ash. We went basically unlimited QE right? We did a trillion and a half in repo over that several months period, starting from last September. I'm measuring now. We bought $250 billion in mortgage-backed securities. They bought $375 billion in treasuries. They relaunched uh, basically a TAF program to support the consumer and business credit. They launched two more facilities to support the corporate debt markets. They're going to now support um, municipal debt, they're going to buy agency issued debt. So all of this now they are they have become the buyer of last resort in everything. And so that's another reason that leads me to believe that there's not going to be another huge waterfall in the equity markets because the Fed has come in and said, we're going to be holding the high yield credit market together. You know, when everybody, the biggest thing on everybody's mind is cash flow, high yield is in trouble, triple B now getting downgraded to high yield. And the Fed said, well, we're a buyer of that now. So that changes everything, you know. And then you see people like Howard Marks opportunistically come out and say, you know what, I'm going to start a high yield fund. Right, if the Fed is going to be buying actual high yield credits, and you can get in the middle of that, then you can go ahead and be long those credits as well. And they probably won't go to the Fed's buying them. So, you know, this is a very um, sort of against free market type of activity that we're seeing on the balance sheet right now. But it's the game that's being played, and if you want to, you know, play the game, then you have to know all the rules um, so that you can play by them. And you know, the Fed balance sheet going, in my opinion, now you know there there's no sign of them reversing this right there was talk of winding down the balance sheet over the first QE fours that we've had right. and everybody was sort of optimistic for that and ironically we were most optimistic for it when Jerome Powell came into office yeah. you know we had a su- we had a super straight-laced guy with his chin held high saying that he was looking to normalize rates and cut the balance sheet down and you know then he ran into you know the guy in the White House that wasn't having it, right? He saw that everybody else in the, country, in the world was building up their balance sheet. In my opinion, that's where the sort of uh, the September big conundrum at the repo window might have right. happened. My, my theory was that President Trump basically got Jerome Powell in the headlock and said, you see where the balance sheet was when um, Barack Obama was president? I want it back up there. Right, right, and, well, and whether that's that's true or not,
1: that's what the optics look like. Yeah, and, yeah. Listen, it it uh, it takes a braver guy than I am to stand up to not just the president of the United States, but also to markets. Right, it's easy to yeah. hold your chin high, as you said, when you're not in that chair, but when right. you are. You know, and when the buck literally, in the most literal sense, stops on your desk, it's really hard yeah. to continue that kind of uh, that kind of move. And even if you philosophically feel that's the direction you should be going, and you know, to pick up on some things that you said, you know, just to review, uh, it's yeah. basically liquidity facilities as far as the eye can see. It's yeah. credit easing down to junk. Uh, and it's massive support at the structural plumbing level in terms of uh, unlimited repo action. Um, so that's the backdrop that we're facing. And I think we, you've sketched that out in a very clear and comprehensive way. My question to you here as we start to wrap up, because we're running out of time, uh, is what are you going to be looking for going forward to confirm that the thesis is correct? And also, what might you see that would cause you to change your mind Based on data that might come in that would contradict potentially what you're looking for? Yeah. Well, you know, to, to navigate
2: 40Vol, you have to start with a plan, right? So, I, um, my plan at the moment. Is I still think that the market can work higher um, because we're going to continue to go against the optics of having bad economic data, but the S and P having more room to unwind technically on the upside in this retracement rally. But what I'm looking for is for the rotation to change, right? That's going to be one of the obvious things for me when we sort of switch from. We just had a switch to a period, Ash, this week, where we had a price in a longer lockdown, right? For the first time, the president came in and said, "Hold up, you know, even you know, slow down." The governor of Georgia this week, there was clear, um, you know, finally some uh, intensity in his voice about you know keeping the nation closed, right? And I think that the market had a price in this longer lockdown than expected, so. I'm going to look for the rotation to change from a longer lockdown than expected to the market saying, okay, what's this reopening going to look like? Like, what's it actually going to look like? What are the numbers that are going to actually pan out? How many people, you know, a lot of this, so 25 million unemployment claims, maybe 30% of those get hired back. And maybe maybe that's too much big of a number. Maybe 20 initially get hired back on a restart. But we're going to, that's the point that the rotation is going to change because we're going to go from pricing in a longer lockdown to let's price in the reopening. And I would imagine that during that, you're going to see a reversal in, you know, the, the broad, widespread weakness in energy stocks that we've seen, I think those have literally been as washed out as they can be. And you'll probably see energy stocks start to perform. You'll probably see transportation stocks start to perform again. And that rotation that I've been talking about, about longer lockdown, might get flipped on its head a little bit. So that's what I'm looking for in this sort of next phase, that it may not be led um, necessarily by the gold miners right and right now the gold miners are leading animal spirits but it's really a defensive play right gold is rallying because of what's going on on central banks around the world where they're all basically adding you know increasing their balance sheet at astronomical levels gold is probably pricing in some inflation in the future so Um, the rotation is going to change. And that's going to be my next sign of what the next phase of the market's going to be. And I can't tell you whether it's going to be up and down for the S&P, because my view is, you know, I've been looking for it to reach back into these moving averages and fail. So we're now at the lower levels of, you know, it's reached the first level of where I think I could, it can fail. So I'm really, really on my toes with eyes wide open at this stage of the game. I think that it can trade up to 3000. Um, but if it doesn't, and this happens to be the highs and we go for a longer lockdown than expected next week, and this rotation continues, we may test a little bit lower levels. But like I said, I'm really looking for the S&P to, to form a little bit of a sturdier bottom and not pierce that recently. So that's how I'm approaching it. It's it's still, I guess it comes back to if it's fair to say reading technical optics and sentiment again, but for the next phase, if that's fair.
1: Tony Greer, Trader's Eye View of the World. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ash. It was great.